Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly Coding Compliance Podcast here with the Coding Network, Mark Babs and Neil Green. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Great, Ross. How are you? Great. Very well, thanks. Yourself? Great, great. It's nice to speak to you again. Um, well, we have a very special guest today, uh, Sharon Nicka from Nicka and Associates. And today we're going to be talking about the importance of independent reviews of revenue cycle plans, uh, specifically as it relates to emergency departments. Sharon, welcome to our uh, Coding Compliance Podcast. Thanks, Ross. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your history? You've been doing this for quite a while, and and uh, we, we've worked together for many years. We won't talk about how long that is because might age us, but uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what uh, Nick and Associates does. Okay. Um, I'm a registered nurse and probably spent the first 17 years of, of my career working in an emergency department. Um, I went to work for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company many, many years ago. And while there became a auditor for, for the Met, in an effort to look at medical records and whether or not MET should deny or pay. Having worked there for about 10 years, um, one of the doctors, I worked PRN in an ER, and one of the docs said, hey, can you take what you're doing on not paying us and make it work for us? And there my career began. I certainly went uh, to work for a large group of physicians. We started our own billing company, worked there for several years, went and took a coding course in Rhode Island. That makes me laugh when I think about um, how it actually started. Um, and then I started NICA and Associates um, with a little hop, skip, and a jump at MCARE for a while and another staffing company. Um, NICA Associates does coding and compliance with a big focus on education. Early on in our company, we realized that it takes not only the physician documenting correctly, but a, a check and balance for what they did. And therein is how we started into compliance. What did we do? How did we make it right or wrong? I think we're all still learning about compliance. Um, and there's still those that are not compliant. Well, excellent. Um, I know that uh, we've been associated with each other for quite some time and, uh, you know, always appreciate all the work that you guys do. Um, as, as we start talking about um, coding compliance and compliance pro uh, programs um, as we're developing them, uh, let's, let's focus a little bit on emergency departments because I think that there is a number of different ways um, providers, and we're talking about providers, provider coding and education or professional coding and education. As, as we deal with um, doctors and, and APPs in our industry, how do you, how do you consider the importance of, of evaluating 
compliance within an emergency department as it specifically relates to um, not only revenue cycle, but the billing and coding aspect of it in the emergency department. It's not the easiest thing to, to deal with on a routine basis. Um, I think, uh, especially in the, the ED, because it is uh, proximal pa patients come in, we have the ED physicians, providers have no background on these patients. They don't even know what's wrong with them. They come in, um, the doc is working basically in the blind. So oftentimes from a provider perspective, um, they can't get any of the histories that they need to manage and take care of uh, that patient correctly. So um, the importance becomes is they, they're really having to get uh, a, a diagnosis or a management option based upon what they're seeing because they have no way to ver verify their background. It's a challenge, both for the provider and the coder. So I think one of the things that always occurs to me when I have discussions about emergency departments, uh, Sharon, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's not everybody out there that uh, not only has been doing this for so many years, but is, uh, has your unique nursing background along with coding educator. Uh, I think the thing that people often miss in the interfaces that we've had with them is that uh, a lot of compliance people tend to treat uh, emergency medicine as an E&M outpatient clinic rather than a unique animal. Could, could you sort of doc, talk a little bit about that? Um, if I understand correctly what you're uh, asking me, Neil, um, in a clinic situation and or a office visit situation, again, uh, oftentimes there's, there's history provided or they've been there prior with uh, accessibility to those prior records. In an ED setting where there is no access to prior records, um, the, the physicians, the providers have to make uh, instant decisions. And oftentimes in those decisions, um, documentation gets lost uh, on the fly because again, then they cannot oftentimes sit down to document that medical record till the encounter's over. The patient's either survived or hasn't survived. And so oftentimes our document, the documentation we receive is not as concise uh, and or rigid or following all of the uh, guidelines that the other uh, E&M services for different practices have. Great, I think that's really important. So thank you very much for that clarification for everyone. Mm -hmm. And one thing that makes it a little bit different, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with this, is um, you know, when you're in an outpatient setting or in a, in a clinic or your doctor's office, you have these rules, right? Where it's, you know, new patient or established patient and, and there are different requirements of documentation, levels of service of billing. In the emergency department, everybody's a new patient, right? Even if you've seen them, even if they're returning customers and, and over and over again, but every time someone shows up, it's a new patient, which requires that additional documentation, that, that copious amounts of documentation. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you play that into your provider education when you're dealing with, with physicians who may need to, to understand that a little bit better than a normal outpatient 
physician office? When I uh, work with providers on this issue, and again, having worked in the ED so much, um, you see a frequent flyer, which is the terminology, endearingly, I might say, uh, that patients come in about every other week. You, you become on first name basis with them. Oh, Sally's back again. But today, Sally has a pain in her toe. One of the things that I talk to the physicians about is don't take Sally's toe for granted. You still have to do a complete job of documenting that medical record, just like Sally's never been there before. It's a new patient, a new complaint, and you must manage them and document them as such. And I think that's a hard, that's a hard concept for them to know when, when they see the same patients over and over again. So um, it's, 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 it's an interesting con- conversation and topic from a compliance perspective too, because, you know, outside of just the coding and billing side of it, you know, Intala requires that all patients be seen and, and no matter, no matter what happens, or at least an evaluation, if they come into the emergency department. So really focusing on that wholesome documentation is really important from not only a, a reimbursement standpoint, but just a compliance with, with what you need to see uh, from a documentation perspective. You know, as we move on, you know, EDs are always hot topics, right? Um, we talk about urgent care centers, EDs, freestanding EDs, and, and the need for, for those kind of services. Um, what are the current kind of hot topics that you guys focus on from a billing and, and uh, reimbursement standpoint? Um, specific, sorry, specifically as it relates to like level fives and, and critical cares, because those are the highest reimbursed uh, levels of service in, in the emergency department. What are the hot topics as it relates to those higher levels? Well, certainly both uh, level fives and critical care have complex medical decision-making. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is the sicker the patient, the more truly cognitive process and thought processes that we need from the physician. Because oftentimes, um, they're, they're driven by the interventions that they have to provide. So they don't give you, they may give you an in-depth procedure note. Maybe they've done CPR, maybe they haven't, maybe they've started multiple boluses, maybe they haven't, but they haven't documented again, what they're really thinking and how they're managing it. And, and medical decision-making is very specific. They've got to tell you what they're thinking. And if they don't, and you get two lines documented, again, you can't give them the appropriate level of service if their MDM is in detail. So Mark Mark and Neil, I know you guys do a lot of this this um, kind of auditing exposure too. And, and as, as Sharon was talking about medical decision-making, I want to dive into that a little bit more and, and expand on it because you know, there are changes in the, in the new regulations as it relates to some of the um, outpatient ENM codes, uh, not necessarily related to, to the emergency services, but there's a lot of focus on medical decision-making. Uh, do you guys see some, some changes in how you're, how you're reviewing those records or how you're auditing? I know from a compliance perspective, I'll give my opinion after, after you guys talk a little bit, but, um, you know, is there any type of kind of nuance around medical decision-making that makes it easier or more 
less risky from a compliance perspective that you would you would input here? Well, you know, so in the, as you point out in the clinic setting, and I think that should be a big key to everybody understanding what Sharon's saying about the difference in the environment is that <clears throat> there are different rules now governing outpatient visits and the documentation requirements. So you have <laughs> a much different portfolio of issues that you're looking at with the uh, physician still being able to approach the clinical history uh, that's usually well-documented if the patient is a returning visit. Um, obviously, there's more similarities if they're not as they start to come into a clinic and, and the clinic hasn't seen somebody. But I, I think that from my standpoint, the thing that I've seen and I keep hearing back from our entire audit team is that you know, everyone, I think, believe the word simplification would mean that doctors would document better. And I think Sharon alluded to this on the ED side, is that regardless of what you do about changing the rules, there are still documentation requirements. And I think that a lot of physicians, when they get going in the clinic setting, just like they do in the ED setting, uh, have people interrupting them. Uh, doctors calling them and they forget where they are in the documentation. And so most of the stuff we're finding in these new rules on this side of the coin is that, uh, gee, they're struggling to still adequately document the record, even under the MDM requirements. That, that's my two cents worth on that. Well, and Ross, I think that um, what happens in the ED setting is Again, the physician, the provider is focused on what they're doing. And they've often said to me, the last thing I think about is how to document my medical record. Exactly. I'm going to take care of the patient. And I think therein lies hmm. uh, our challenge uh, um, is to getting them to understand that uh, no matter what, they've saved the life, but they've got to be compliant in their documentation or again, an outside payer is going to come in and say, this doesn't uh, smell correctly and we're gonna do an audit. You know, from a compliance perspective, when talking to, to my clients who are in emergency medicine, you know, I really try to tell them that, look, you, know, you need to create a defensible record. And in my opinion, the number one way of doing that is making sure your medical decision, making what you did, why you did it, the course you took, the sickness of the patient, and, and, and really um, documenting those different criteria is, is the number one jump off point. And, you know, if, if I had to focus on some sort of provider education from a compliance perspective, I always say start there. The rest of it will fall in line and the counting rules and everything else, which in my opinion, I, I think that that is going away here in the next probably few years um, because it's more about the quality of patient care and the, and the value-based reimbursement and, and the, the outcomes versus checking the boxes and wanted to, to just kind of get your, your thoughts and opinions on that. Um, absolutely. I think that we are headed to an outcomes 
uh, documentation world rather than right now, a lot is directed at procedures as opposed to outcomes. So I think that's the wave of the future. And because we've had these same guidelines, especially in emergency medicine, since 1996, roughly, changing the mindset and what the requirements that they're going from procedural to outcomes is gonna be the biggest challenge that we have. So with a compliance plan in place, it's a good educational tool. You can show them in black and white what they didn't write, but what they, they, they truly probably did. You can get it from the nurse's notes off oftentimes. And ultimately, I think the providers are going to take that type of directive a little bit better than <laughs> some of the other Medicare rules and accounting rules. Um, so, so, so as we move on to other hot topics, you know, a lot of times patients start out in the emergency department and, you know, they've got three aspects of disposition, right? They either get discharged, they get admitted, or um, what, uh, you know, was created as a observation services, right? They don't know yet. Do they go admit? Do they go home? Or do they, do they just need to, to, to be looked at for a while. And sometimes that happens in the emergency department. Sometimes there are different locations where it can happen as well. What's your kind of thoughts on the, the issues related to observation services and, and how they dovetail into what's being done in the emergency department? And not only that, but you know, what are the risk areas that a compliance program related to billing and coding should be looking at as it relates to um, observation? I think that observation has um, long been a target for audit. Part of the reason being is oftentimes it gets abused. Um, it's high RVUs. The third-party payers don't want to pay for it because, again, they think it's abused. So um, I think um, being in the ED and deciding that they're going to – observe the patient has to be completely documented a little bit differently. When, when do they think? Now, a good example is um, I have a provider that likes to um, think every patient should be observed. So the patient walks through the door and it goes transferred to observation status. Well, we all know that we have to examine them and evaluate them before they go to us. So um, I think observation is truly uh, going to be more accepted as we become more educated and what is required uh, of why they observe, why they are, why they really are observing them and not as a dump all or a uh, revenue stream, but more thoroughly to give better quality of care. So, yeah, uh, I guess I don't, I don't know if I answered your question completely, Ross, but. No, I think you did. Um, you know, observation services is an interesting tool that should be used, in my opinion, from a payer standpoint to, as a benefit, right? So you're not paying your, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars as an inpatient hospital uh, admission for a certain period of time, just to see if things work, but it's just to really, evaluate the patient status. And, you know, if, if the provider documentation is right on the money and utilized for what it needs to be utilized for, as you were indicating, you know, I think it's a beneficial service and, and more and more that it potentially gets abused, the more and more it's going to be audited and the more and more it's going to be requiring 
you know, additional documentation. So, um, you know, Mark and, and Neil, on, on your side of it, what, how do you see observation services playing into two different compliance programs? Well, I see it from a coding standpoint that oftentimes healthcare systems are assigning people that don't have the sort of understanding that of the environment as you and Sharon have outlined. They don't have a real deep background in uh, ED and observation. Um, oftentimes uh, you get a coder that's certified filling the slot or you get a outpatient, what they call an outpatient coder, who's not only supposed to be able to be an expert in ED, but they're also coding imaging and outpatient surgery and on and on and on. It's very hard when you expect coders to take on a broader and broader role of the environments that they're coding for and expect them to come up with the right solution. And I'm sure Sharon would agree with that. You know, if you're not dealing with people that really understand the ED chart and how someone could get into the observation unit, especially in this environment where, as she pointed out, observation units are being audited left and right, as are, as we talked about before, level fives in critical care. And, you know, the physicians love all these things because if there's any sort of RVU system that they're being reimbursed on, they're super excited Mm -hmm. about using these codes. Mm -hmm. So um, the problem is just as Sharon's outlined it, A, is the documentation there, which is what I was saying before about level five in critical care. And uh, then the second point is, what are the skill sets of the coder? What are you expecting them to do? And do you really have somebody that is doing this? Because there's very few ED coders uh, or physicians, I should say, that are actually doing their own coding. There are some, but very few. And so, uh, you know, when I look at this, I go, okay, so do, do you start off with the proposition that this person is an expert in ED coding? And what does their background look like? Yeah, when I was reading something the other day related to um, <clears throat> re-review or re-auditing of the two midnight rule, um, you know, how does that going to play into to observation services and documentation. Does anybody have an opinion on that? I'm going to defer to Sharon because she's closest to that. Um, uh, Raj, would you uh, repeat that a little bit differently? I didn't quite understand it. So how do I see what... what... The two midnight rule um, as it relates oh. to, to inpatient. And I know that, you know, with, with observation that plays a lot into... Kind of this two midnight rule um, aspect that's that's been discussed over many years, um, but it sounds like it's finally starting to get a little bit more traction here uh, by CMS in the next few few years as part of their work plan. Um, do you see that changing any documentation and observation or or the emergency department? You know, certainly with uh, any focus like the midnight rule. Um, it, it will change the way they doc, the, the way they document. Um, but I haven't looked into my crystal ball lately, so I'm not sure what that impact will have, but it's going to have to change the way that um, the documentation is required. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing we're going to keep keep an eye on. I don't think it's something we have to address at this point in time, but but definitely as compliance programs and and the documentation starts to to work through, um, you know, observation services and any type of corresponding short stay in patients are definitely going to have to be looked at because I think they do play hand in hand. Um, you know, moving on to you know the the pandemic and, and all the things that went on for the last year or so, um, you know, we've seen some, some expansion of the rules as it relates to uh, telemedicine and, and you know, telemedicine was then allowed in the emergency department standpoint, all those ENM codes from, um, you know, level ones to level fives. Um, you know, how do you see the expansion of these new services, A, continuing, B, um, you know, look back from those standpoints? How are you seeing that in your business? Um, it's, it's an interesting concept because um, we, we have clients in Alaska that have tried telemedicine and I, it, the payer just is not paying for it. It just doesn't seem to work. But I, I think it's very difficult, especially with COVID, if you, if you think about it and you're doing, say, a telemedicine visit, you can't make a determination. You got to swab them. You got to touch them. You got to look at them. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that wave of the future is going to work or not. Because again, there are times when you you can't do a diagnostic over a screen. You know, that's that's my. There, in order for that to work. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of significant changes in documentation requirements and, and payer behavior and payer expectations. Just my thoughts. Yeah. And I, and I think technology is going to play a big portion of it too, right? Because you can't, you can't do the diagnostic services that are required for the documentation of say level three, four or five um, without actually touching and, and you know, examining the patient hands-on, or at least you know, taking a look inside with, with radiology or MRIs or CT scans. So um, interesting that you're seeing a lot of payers denying that, although um, you know, with the emergency orders, it was one of those that was expanded from CMS's perspective to be able to, to cover those reimbursements because people weren't able to go to the hospital. So I didn't have a lot of clients that were, were taking advantage of the telemedicine side on the emergency departments because they were just open and they were taking patients as they come in. So I'm just, yeah, just curious about, about um, where we see that going. Cause I do think telemedicine is um, the wave of the future. Just right. might not be the wave of the future for emergency medicine. So, Mark or, or Neil, any any thoughts on telemedicine? Well, I agree with everything that Sharon was saying about how difficult it is to get a good diagnosis for an emergency case. You know, so um, I think that uh, you know, for those organizations that have uh, <clears throat> urgent care setups, um, there may be a, a smaller percentage of those people that uh, might apply to. Uh, to the telemedicine piece, um, but I, you know, I and the other special piece that we do, um, it has a much greater application, and certain specialties are really open to it, and others are are really not. I mean, most of the orthopods, for instance, that we deal with, don't want anything to do with it because they want to touch the patient, you know. But um, there's lots of applications to cardiology where. They're doing follow-up visits and things like that. And they're just trying to 
do after visits that they're dealing with, that there is a lot of acceptance to those types of things. I totally agree. And although the wave of the future, we're far behind what it's going to take to get us there from a technology yeah. standpoint, at least in, in my opinion. Well, as, as we wrap up, um, wanted to talk a little bit about the skill sets in a compliance department for, for emergency medicine. Um, when you're, you know, both, both, you know, Sharon and, and Neil and Mark, you guys deal with a lot of compliance individuals or even take one step back revenue cycle individuals um, who deal with, you know, providers who, who essentially operate and, and staff emergency medicine, uh, emergency departments, you know, kind of what do you think the skill sets should be for those, those compliance programs? Do they need to be clinical? Do they need to be more coder based? Do they need to have, uh, you know, experience in that type of arena? Can you just move them around from different, different services to another? And what's your, what's your gut on that? We'll start with Sharon. And, you know, how do you think a good compliance department and program, uh, what, what, what that skill should set should be for, for emergency medicine? I think it's important that um, your compliance department has um, divisions. For instance, if they're going to audit emergency medicine, then they have to understand emergency medicine. They have to follow emergency medicine's guidelines and not um, come to a meeting that they have supposedly audited charts, but they've used the wrong set of rules to audit the emergency department. So I think they have to come to the table with understanding the specialty, especially the ED specialty of what they're doing, know those rules. And um, that means, you know, what, what are we looking at, a clinician or a coder? I think it's all about experience and understanding the specialty. So um, that's my thoughts. Yeah, I would agree with Sharon. You know, this is a lot of the dysfunction that we see in the environment is there's an over-reliance on uh, health system compliance departments. And the vast majority of people in compliance and healthcare organizations tend to have stronger uh, outpatient clinic backgrounds than they do for the ED. And so oftentimes they come to the wrong conclusion when they look at records. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this multiple times. And <clears throat> I think the other part of this is, is that, again, if you don't have people that understand the environment, which is what I was uh, referring to before, and it's tougher is the bigger these health systems get, they're expected to do, you know, lots and lots and lots of audits. And, um, so you constantly see health systems pushing back because they don't have the budget to effectively have enough specialty expertise on board. There's assumptions that are being made because somebody is a certified auditor that uh, they know all specialties, which is just absolutely not true. And so Again, just like you alluded to it and Sharon alluded to it, if, you're, if your compliance department is not providing to you an expert in emergency medicine, then you need to go outside and get one. You know the old saying, Ross, the uh, uh, jack of all trades and a master of none. 
you have to know the specialty that you're auditing and understand the different sets in order to effectively uh, be successful in a compliance department in a hospital or any setting for that matter. Uh, I, I'd like, this is Mark, and I'd like to add that, um, uh, and it tags along with what Neil said, is um, a, an important quality for compliance officers is a form of humility. Humility that they don't know it all and, um, uh, and that they should ask for specialty specific assistance. Uh, it, it's, it, it's all too frequently we see that uh, uh, a good coder in a specialty gets promoted and gets promoted to become a, in the compliance office and, and uh, they're, they're resistant to outside uh, uh, opinions. And they think that, uh, and the, the, the practice administrator who may or may not uh, know much about uh, the details of coding uh, tends to, to believe their own his, own, his or her own staff. And un unless there is the humility and recognition that we it, we don't know it all, but the fund of knowledge encompassing medicine and surgery and radiology and pathology and on and on, and emergency medicine and, and on and on is just so enormous that um, uh, you've got to be focused in a specialization and you've got to get that input to make sure that things are going right. And you've got to say, gee, I don't know this all that well. Let me find someone to help me in this particular specialty. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, coming from someone who's a, been a compliance officer over multi-specialties um, to the extent that they didn't even correlate, whether it's emergency medicine, ambulance or surgery or anesthesia or radiology. Um, I, I can tell you, I know what I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty clear about it, right? That's why we utilize the outside experts like Nick and Associates and, and the Coding Network to, to help build um, a, a more robust compliance program. And, and I will be the first one to tell you that, that that is the reason why when I establish compliance departments, I set it up knowing that we are going to use experts in the industry. With that said, you are 100% correct that there is this stigma in the compliance officer world that you must know it all, you yep. must do it all, you must be able to answer all the questions, which is a, a phenomenon that we've been thinking about for quite some time because it doesn't happen in the legal industry. You have general counsels who are part of hospital systems who have a plethora of outside counsels who they ask opinions of. They're not, they're not required to know every specialty, every specialty in law that they have to deal with. Compliance officers should have that same resource as well. And I think far often, uh, far too often, the corporations, the hospitals, the practices that they work for really want them to know it all. And I don't think that that's the best way to, to establish your compliance program. I, I think you're 100% correct, Mark. And it's something that we, and as, as our company and, and you all, I think we can all work together to, to improve that process because I think we all want better, better compliance with regulations and, and compliance programs. So, Yeah, 
Good. Well, you know, it's it's what you don't know that can cause the most damage. Especially if you pretend to know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate everybody's time today. Um, you know, wrapping this up, we did talk a little bit about what are the specialties and the hot topics in, in the emergency uh, medicine world, how, how to document correctly and, and the focus on medical decision-making and, and what's going to take a, a company to, or a, or a hospital or a practice to have a, a robust compliance department. If you're dealing with specialty services like emergency medicine, I really want to uh, thank Sharon for your time today and uh, Mark and, and Neil as well. We really do appreciate taking the time to, to talk about this subject today. Thank you very much, bro. Be safe. Thanks for listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast. The good, bad, and ugly. Sponsored by Ronan Healthcare Consultants and the Coding Network. With our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.